Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, this is a little different for me. I'll have to get used to just standing in front of this microphone, which means I can't wander very far. Turn to Psalm 39. Actually, we are going to attempt to do both Psalm 38 and 39 this evening because thematically they are very, very the same. And you will notice in Psalm 39, which is why I had you turn there first, you'll see in verse 10 that David says, Remove thy plague from me because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. If you look at Psalm 38, verse 11, you'll see my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. So here's what's happening in both of these psalms. David is obviously sick, and it's apparently a contagious sickness, because family and friends are staying away from him. And in fact, that Hebrew word that is translated plague in both of those psalms, is the same word that is used when referring to any kind of leprosy, any kind of contagious sickness. David is going to describe this sickness, but he's also going to say that it reminds him of his sinfulness, and so he connects the two. Now, we don't know what the particular sin is that David's talking about, and we don't know what the particular sickness is that he has, but he is convinced that it is his sin that has produced the sickness. And he ends up, as a result, crying out to God to remove the sickness from him. So even though these two psalms are not theological in nature, they have a very deep theological underpinning. And that very deep theological underpinning is something that I've been stressing here at GCA for as many years as we've ever been here, which is, if God is truly sovereign, genuinely sovereign, then nothing can get to you that God hasn't determined is going to get to you. And if God has determined it, then it has purpose. And I don't know what people do who go through sickness and don't know God and then decide that their sicknesses and their troubles in life are just random occurrences, that they don't have any purpose to them. Even worse, if you're a Christian person and you don't think that sickness and problems in life have purpose, then you imagine a God who is capricious, a God who could have stopped that sickness from reaching you, and yet for whatever reason, he just didn't. And that would make God cruel. Instead, what David demonstrates here is that 
the sickness that is put upon him, he recognizes that it is sovereign God who put it on him, and he concludes that it's because of his sin. We don't know what the grievous sin was, but we know that David connects those two things. So very much like the writer of Hebrews who tells us that whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son that he receives, that is very much like the theology that is carrying David through these two psalms. Because David concludes that this sickness is a chastening from God. It's not that God will give up on him. It's not that God will lose him. He concludes that God is doing this to him in order to get his attention so that he will turn back to God. And sure enough, in Psalm 38, that's exactly what we find. How many times have you heard me say that God knows how to drive you into a corner where your only option is to go back to God? I mean, he is so sovereign that he can put troubles and trials and difficulties on you. When you get too full of yourself, when you get too prideful or arrogant or start thinking you're a self-made man or a woman, you women did not get off on that one. When you start thinking you're an independent person, God knows that all he has to do is drop you. All he has to do is put sickness on you, bring trouble your way, and then where are you going to go? David's conclusion is that God put this on him for a reason. But in the midst of that, David is also going to use language of, where are you? I keep praying to you. I keep crying to you. And yet, David trusts him. And I think that is applicable for every one of us. I don't know if you have ever been through a sickness that you thought was going to kill you. I personally have, and yet, in the midst of that disaster, my faith in God was increased because I had nowhere else to go but God. There was one particular night where the doctors gave my mother the we've done everything we can do speech, and they said, tonight, he'll either turn a corner or, this is their phrase, total organ collapse. And I knew that night that live or die was up to God. Remain or go, it's all up to God. And that attitude, that perspective, is something that we need to hang on to all the time. But when we get into good times, when life is going well, we forget it. And the same way that the blessings of this life are coming to us directly from God, it's the same way that the troubles are coming. And they all have a purpose, which is to drive us to God, to bless God, to thank God, and to remember and to praise God through the good times and through the bad times. Now, we should be able to get through both of these psalms because combined, they're shorter than the psalm that we got through last week. And there's not a whole lot of references that we need to go chase down. And they are very direct in their language, so we should be able to make it through both of them. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. 
Now, what we're going to see as we continue in this psalm is that David is not saying, don't rebuke me. He recognizes the rebuke. He takes responsibility for the chastening. So it's not that he's saying, don't rebuke me, God, don't chasten me. But instead, he is saying, when you do it, don't let your wrath be part of it. Don't let your burning anger be part of it. I think just about every parenting book that I've ever read or that you've ever read will tell you that when you discipline your children, especially if there is a corporal aspect to that discipline, that you're not supposed to do it in anger. And so I think David's perspective is very much like that. Yes, rebuke me, but don't rebuke me in your wrath. Instead, as David has said repeatedly in the Psalms that we have looked at so far, he has said, remember me in your loving kindness. Remember me in your long-suffering. Remember me in your grace. So he has always asked that God look at him lovingly and fatherly. So I think David is simply saying, you can rebuke me, that's appropriate, but don't rebuke me in your wrath. And don't chasten me in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. So who is David crediting with the trouble he's going through? He's going to describe it in a moment as a sickness, and yet he sees it completely as God's doing. Verse 3. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. That one verse sums up everything I've said so far tonight, which is David is going through a sickness, but he recognizes that it is God who has brought the sickness on him, and he is aware of his own sinfulness, and he is convinced that it is his own sin, his own rebellion, that has brought on the punishment of God. God was indignant, apparently, about something David did. And as a result of that indignation, there is now no soundness, no wholeness, no health in David's flesh. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. So he has said it twice now. I'm sick, I'm not healthy, but it's because of my sin. And because of my sin, you have indignation and because of your indignation, I'm sick. So David is taking complete responsibility here, which is why in verse 1 I said, it's not that David is saying, don't rebuke me. He's just saying, rebuke me out of love and grace. Don't rebuke me in your wrath. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. That's the description of a flood. He's saying, I am submerged, I am overwhelmed by my own iniquities. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. And now he's going to describe the state of his body and his sickness. He has already told us that there is no soundness in his flesh, no health in his bones. And now he's going to describe his wounds. My wounds grow foul. And fester 
So whatever this sickness is, he has open sores on his body. But notice why he has the open sores on his body. He says, my wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. It's my fault. I take complete the responsibility for it. Yes, I did something that so offended God that I now am this sick. I'm bent over and I'm greatly bowed down. I go mourning, sadly, weeping, depressed all day long. For my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. Whatever that is, whatever that disease is, it sounds bad. Burning inside his body and in his loins, which means his stomach was really upset. And he's got some kind of open sores going on. There's no soundness, no health in his flesh. And then he says, I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. If you've ever been really sick, you know that it messes with your mind. Am I telling the truth, Luann? It will make you depressed. It will make you upset. It will agitate you. It will break your sleep. It will mess with your head. And that's what David's describing here. Not only does he have the physical torment of all of these symptoms that he's dealing with, but on top of that, he has agitation in his heart, in his mind, and it causes him to groan. Lord, all my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden from you. David might be talking about his desire to get well. And saying, God, you know my desire. I want to get well. He may also be referring to whatever the sin was. Whatever the rebellion was. Whatever the desire was. So he may be admitting, you know what brought this on. You know how I've been. But you also see that I'm sighing and I'm praying and I'm sick in front of you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, even that, has gone from me. Okay, pretty extensive description of the sickness he's going through. And he sees God as the cause and the reason for the sickness. But David sees himself as the responsible party. He brought it on himself because of his rebellion. Verse 11, this is where we find out that it's obviously contagious. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life, as if all of this wasn't enough, He can't get his friends near him. He can't get family near him. He's so very sick in his bones, in his flesh, in his mind. And then on top of that, he has enemies who are taking advantage of the fact that David is sick and that he's off the throne. They want to guarantee that he never mounts the throne again. They want to see him destroyed completely. So that just adds to the heartache of David. Those who seek my life Lay traps, lay snares for me. And those who seek to injure me 
have threatened my destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a dumb man who does not open his mouth. Here's something I think Luann will also agree with, and I'm only mentioning Luann because I know she's been through sicknesses that fortunately she recovered from, and she's sitting here now, but I know you've been through some tough days. When you're at the point where the doctors are saying things like cancer, and you've got a couple of months to live, when the doctor says total organ collapse, when you hear that kind of language, suddenly the cares of this world and what's going on on CNN just doesn't matter to you. You're working hard on just staying alive. You're working hard on just getting through another day. And you don't want to have discussions with people. And you don't want to listen to all the noise and all the opinions and all the talk of people. I think that's what David is describing here. I'm like a deaf man. I don't want to hear anything else. And I'm like a dumb man who doesn't open his mouth. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to discuss it. I know plenty of people. I happen to be one of them, who when I'm in the hospital, don't feel like entertaining people. I'm happy that anybody would come and see me, but still. Anyway, I think that's what David is describing, that because of everything he's going through, he's not listening, he's not talking, he's just surviving. Verse 14, yes, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no arguments. In that state, David is completely cornered by God, and David turns to God for his deliverance at this point, which is remarkable. It fits perfectly with the theology that we have always advanced here, that God in his sovereignty will bring about sickness and trials in your life for the purpose of cornering you, for the purpose of producing faith in you, for the purpose of bringing you back to himself. He's not going to lose you. He is going to correct you. And so, very much like Jesus hanging on the cross, after crying out with a loud voice, and after having his father pour out the wrath of God on him, His final words were still faith in God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Same thing David's going through here. With everything I'm dealing with, with all the pain I'm in, with my family not being able to get to me, with my enemies wanting to kill me, and I'm so sick I can't get up off my bed, I can't do anything about it. For my hope is in you, O Lord. Isn't that remarkable? And that's exactly where we all need to get. And God will get us there. I say, learn the lesson while you're well, because God knows how to drive you to that. For I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord, my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me, who when my foot slips would magnify themselves over me. David talks a lot about having standing, standing firm, not having his foot slip. 
here, that language of my foot slipping is I'm falling. I'm unable to defend myself. And so he's expecting God to defend him and God to heal him and God to lift him up again. And meanwhile, as he's in this state of being so incapacitated, it is up to God to even deal with his enemies. So I said, may they not rejoice over me who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me. For I am ready to fall. And my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. I heard a very good sermon a couple weeks ago. The pastor, the preacher was saying, the difference between the world and saved people is not that one group doesn't sin. What we know is ever since the fall of Adam, all humankind are fallen before God. We are all born into iniquity, and we sin as a result. Said so the difference between the saved and the unsaved man is that the unsaved man doesn't care. The saved man cries over his sin and goes back to God confessing his sin and asking God over and over again for redemption and salvation and forgiveness and long-suffering. And I think that's right. I think that's the primary difference between saved and unsaved people. Here is David doing the very same thing as he's ready to just give it up. He's ready to, to just fall completely. He's, he thinks he's so close to death, and his sorrow is continually before him, and so he confesses his own iniquity and admits that he is full of anxiety because of his own sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. And those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what is good. Notice again the contrast. Because we sometimes, when we get sick, when life is really going difficult for us, when our foot slips, it's easy for us to say, well then, where is God in all this? And is this happening to me because God is angry and punishing me and I've lost my salvation? And I David says right here, people hate me because I follow after what is good. And even though he follows after what is good, this is the state he's in right now. Meaning that even people who pursue God and follow after good sometimes slip, sometimes get sick, sometimes go through difficult days. Can I get a witness? Those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Do not be far from me. Hurry up. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. 
That's where David finally gets to. There's no other salvation for me. There's no other cure for my disease. There's no other way that I'm going to get up off this sickbed if God doesn't heal me. And so he is crying and praying and trusting God and saying, Don't forsake me, O Lord, my God, and don't be far from me, but instead hurry to help me because you're my salvation. Now, that entire psalm, if you look back at the superscript of the psalm, it says a psalm of David for a memorial. In other words, David wrote it as a remembrance. Apparently, David recovered from this sickness, but he didn't want to forget what he learned during the sickness. And so he wrote it down as a memorial, as a remembrance so that he would not forget not only that God delivered him, but in the midst of his pain and his sickness, he had nowhere else to go but God, and he never wanted to forget that. Psalm 39. The difference between 38 and 39, though they are thematically so very the same, if that is a sentence, they are so very the same, The difference between them is that this particular one, the superscript says, for the choir director, for Jeduthun, a psalm of David. This one, David wanted publicly announced with musical accompaniment. He wanted it to be in the temple. He wanted to share this one with people, whereas Psalm 38 was a remembrance to David about David. But this is a more public one, and it carries the same theme. Starts, I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. Okay, now in a moment, we're going to talk again about the plague. David is still talking about his sickness. But apparently, he's also trying to continue operating as the king and as the judge in Israel. And he's already told us that his enemies are trying to destroy him. And sometimes they're even in his midst. And you can only imagine as he's laying there on his sickbed, just being in such pain and being bent over and being so desperate. And then enemies come around. I mean, David just wants to let him have it. David is prone to just say all kinds of evil things to them. And yet he's saying, I bit my tongue. I was dumb. I was silent. I refrained even from saying the good to them. And my sorrow grew worse. And my heart was hot within me. And my musing, my thinking about it was like fire burning. David was upset. I'm sure he was thinking like, what are you doing here? Did you come to gloat over my sickness? You're trying to throw me off the throne. I've got some choice words for you, buddy. Not that David ever used the word buddy. But I can imagine that David was just hot. He even says so. I I was angry. And when he was that angry, he knew better than to talk. He knew better than to say things that he would regret later. So he said, I'm going to guard my ways so that I won't sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth as with a muzzle. 
Seems like good advice for pretty much all of us, doesn't it? Because in a moment, David is going to say, I did speak, but not until I had really thought about it. When we were reading through the Proverbs, we saw so much from Solomon about being careful with your speech. And one of the things that Solomon said was, don't talk immediately. Back off, think, consider your words. Make sure that your words are spreading kindness and grace to people. You never know the damage you can do with your tongue. And certainly, James picks that up in the New Testament. Here is yet another example from David in the Psalms. When you're sick, when you're angry, when you're hot, when you're upset at people, just just calm down first. Verse 3, my heart was hot within me while I was musing, while I was thinking about it, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. So not until he had time to just calm down, get over it. Verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end. I mean, he thinks he's dying. Let me know. Is this the end of it? Am I going to die here? What is the extent of my days? But then in the midst of asking God to reveal to him the length of his own days, he explains why he wants to know it. We all have that idle curiosity of how many days and years do I get? When am I actually going to die and what's going to kill me? But the reason David wants to know it is because he wants to learn the lesson, let me know how transient I am. The word transient is passing temporary. He's going to say more about that in just a moment. He's going to expand on that topic. He wants to think about his days here on earth and what he considers his soon coming death. He wants to consider all that because he wants to think about how transient his life is, how fleeting, how passing, what a vapor life is. Behold, You have made my days like hand's breadths. A hand's breadth is a measurement. You take a man's hand and you go from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the little finger when your hand is wide as it can be, and that was a way that they used to measure. He's saying, measure my days. Tell me what the measurement is because you've already measured out my days the same way that a man would use his hand to measure. And my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Well, yeah, God who is eternal, God who has always been, what is that in comparison to your three score and ten? It's nothing. Surely every man at his best, the NASB says, is a mere breath. That's how quickly it passes. The King James, I believe, says, Surely a man at his best state is altogether vanity. Very much like Solomon saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Because when you really get a look at the splendor of God, and then you really get a look at our passing vapor of life, it's very clear that he is absolutely everything He is the creator and the sustainer of your life. You have no life without him. And your lifetime and the things that you think are so important in this lifetime 
all add up to nothing, really. They don't add to him. They don't subtract from him. And when you die, you leave it all here and you take nothing with you. So what part of this life is just so important? My lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best state is a mere breath. Think about that. He even takes the moment to say, consider it. Because then you're going to have a proper understanding of the relationship between you and God. Who God is, what God is like. The majesty and eternality of God versus you. You are utterly and completely dependent. And in a moment, we're going to find out that David still has the plague as he's writing this. He's still sick. These are the lessons that are coming out of the sickness that he is enduring. He is recognizing that his life is utterly and completely in God's hands. God is his salvation. If he's going to live or if he's going to die, it's completely up to God. God has measured out his the length of his life, like measuring with a hand breadth, and his life is nothing. It's passing, it's a vapor, and altogether it's vanity. Verse 6. Surely every man walks about as a phantom, just nothing like a, an apparition. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. That is such a funny phrase, and I hope you can appreciate it because David is saying human beings while they're here on the planet get awfully worked up about a whole lot of stuff that doesn't matter. Can I get a witness? Human beings just rock and roil about these things that they think are so, so important. But drop them. Make them sick. Put them on their deathbed. And all that stuff they thought was so important comes up to nothing. And they realize it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. And it happens that fast. Wow, my fingers didn't even snap. It, it happens that fast. <laughs> it, life goes by so quick. You wake up one day and look in the mirror and go, who's this old guy? It just goes by so quickly. It's a mere breath. Surely they, these men who are passing on the planet, who are nothing in the end, they make such an uproar for nothing. And he amasses stuff. The NASB adds the word riches. He amasses everything that this world has to offer, and he doesn't even know who's going to gather it. You can go through your whole life and accumulate all the wealth of this world. When you die, you take none of it with you, and you're not really in charge of what happens with it all once you're gone. Even if you leave it to your kids, there's no guarantee that they're not going to squander it. You don't know what's going to happen with all the stuff you worked your whole life to accumulate. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait My hope is in thee. There's the contrast. The people of this world hope for, plan for, work real hard for the stuff of this life, which is altogether vanity. David contrasts it with his own hope and his own desire and says, what do I want? And again, 
sick as he is, this is the conclusion that he's been driven to. My hope is completely in you because there's no amount of wealth. He's king at this moment. He's a pretty wealthy guy. He has access to pretty much everything he could ever want, and none of it can help him. None of it can cure him. None of it can get him up off his sickbed. So what is it that he really wants? What is it he really desires? And now, Lord, interesting word, now, in comparison to them and in the state I'm in, now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. So David recognizes, as we saw in the previous psalm, he recognizes that his sickness is a correction from God because of his own sinfulness. But notice that David does not say, if you get me through this, God, I'll clean up my act and do better. Instead, what he says is, you have to deliver me from my transgressions because he has transgressed against God. And only if God forgives him is there going to be a cure for his transgressions. And even in his sickness, even in his desperation, he continues to look at God properly and recognize that the only hope, the only deliverance that's going to come to him has to be from God. And on top of that, don't let me die in this state. Not when I got enemies out here making fun of me. Don't make me a reproach in front of these fools. I have become dumb. I don't open my mouth. That's how this psalm began. I'm angry at them. They're in my presence. I'm trying to shut up. I've become dumb. I don't open my mouth. Because it is you who has done it. This is very much like Job. If you remember when we worked through the book of Job, Job kept retaining his integrity and arguing with his three fair-weather friends that this was the result of God's sovereign decision and not the result of anything he had done. And his friends just keep coming at him again and again and again, and yet he would not turn and blame God for what he was going through until toward the end of the book when he finally says, if God were here, I'd ask him and he'd answer me. And then God shows up and says, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? Quit you like a man, and I will ask you and you will answer me. But for the most part, Job and David recognize that when you're under the hand of God, You don't talk back. You pray to God. You beg God. You wait on God. You hope in God. I've become dumb. I have not opened my mouth because I realize it's you who did this. I'm in this state because of you. And he doesn't blame God that he's in this state. He trusts in God while he's in this state. It's pretty remarkable. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am withering away. I am perishing. But again, I know why. It's because of the opposition of your hand. You're the one who is putting this on me. Your hand is heavy on me. And the only way I'm getting over this sickness, this plague, this infectious disease, the only way I'm getting over it is if you remove it from me. 
I can't do anything about it. With these reproofs, with what I'm going through, you do chasten a man for his iniquity. Thou dost consume like a moth what is precious to him, and surely every man is a mere breath. Think of that. So our lives are nothing. Our lives are a vapor. Our lives are in God's hands. He can do whatever he wants with us. And he reproves us. And he corrects us. And that reproof and correction takes the form of chastening. And the writer of Hebrews says, We all had fathers who used to chasten us, but they did it for their own good. They're just keeping peace within the household. And the writer of Hebrews says, And none of that chastening was fun for the moment. And he compares that to the chastening that God puts us through. And he says, but it brings about a good result. The result of it is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So God not only brings the trouble, not only brings the disease, but he also has an end in mind. And because he is all-powerful, he is going to see it through to the end in order to produce the very thing he intended to produce in you, which is the peaceable fruit of of your righteousness and the restoration of the relationship between him and you. Which means that even the hardships, the sicknesses, and the difficulties of this life are actually grace from God, who rather than give up on you, teaches you, trains you, instructs you, chastens you, and draws you to himself. I know that's not the way that most people think of the sicknesses of this life. And when you're going through the sicknesses of this life, it's very hard to think, oh, yay, thank you, God. But theologically, biblically, the reality is everything we go through in this life has purpose, and it is all God's purpose, and he is going to do with us whatever he's going to do with us. I say get on his side, take sides against yourself, And recognize that sovereign God has a purpose in what he's doing for you. And praise him, worship him, thank him, even in the midst of your pain. That's what David did. With reproofs, thou dost chasten a man for iniquity. And thou dost consume as a moth what is precious to him. What's the most precious thing a man has? Or a woman, what's the most precious thing you have? Your life. It doesn't matter how much other material stuff you've got, if you don't have your life, none of that counts for anything. Right behind that is your health. I mean, it doesn't matter how many boats and cars you own if you can't get up off the floor and go use them. Your life and your health are the most vital, most precious things that you possess in this lifetime. And here David says, and you consume the same way that a moth will consume material and make it worthless. You consume our life and our health. You consume everything that we have, the things that are most precious to us, because you are reproving us, because you are chastening us because of our iniquity. And surely every man is just a mere moment of breathing. I think of 
Elder Wren from this past Sunday, sighing for us, demonstrating what a sigh is and saying, mom's gone, dad's gone. David saying, my health is gone. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. And now he's going to again say, I feel so very far from you. And we don't know if it's because David felt like my own sinfulness has kept me far from you, or whether he's expressing the pain I'm going through and the lack of deliverance when I want it done demonstrates to me that I'm far from you. So he expresses that, and he says, I'm like a stranger with you. For I am a stranger with you. I am a sojourner like my father's. That's right. He's a descendant of the Hebrews. The sojourners, the people who, like Abraham, sojourned in a land that was not theirs while believing the promise of God that they were going to inherit it. Here's David saying, while I'm here on this planet and while I'm here going through all these physical ailments and sicknesses, while I'm here with my enemies trying to destroy me, I'm just sojourning in this land and I feel far away from you. I'm, I'm lost here. So do this, verse 13, because he gives God complete credit for everything he's going through. He says, Can you, could you maybe look at somebody else for a while? It's kind of like the beginning of the book of Job when God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I've always thought that Job at that moment would be going, hey, 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 what are you bringing me up for? Could we maybe talk about somebody else? The shoe height is good. Go talk about him. He's Turn your gaze away from me so that I may be happy, be content, so that I can smile again, says the NASB, so that I can smile again before I depart and I am no more. He thought this was going to kill him. He thought he was going to die of this disease. And you know what? He didn't. How do we know? He wrote this psalm and then sent it to the musician in the temple because he wanted everybody to experience this moment that he experienced. Because I think it is universal in its theme. We all get sick. We all struggle. We all go through difficulties in this life. And in the midst of those pains, we may even feel like God is far away from us and not listening. And yet, where are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? You have no choice but to go back to God again and again and admit, my life is completely in your hands. If I have reached the end of my life, then I know for sure that it was just a vapor and If you keep me here on this planet, then you are my salvation. You're going to raise me up again. You're going to put me back on on my feet, and I'm going to live out the rest of my life. But that's you that did that. If I die and you take me home to heaven, I win. But it's you that did that. I like that David said, I know completely, I know utterly 
that what I'm going through and how it comes out, you did it. And there's nothing David could do about it, and that's a very good place to be, is to be in the state where you realize there's nothing I can do about it. God has to do it. It's completely up to him. But let's be honest, so is everything. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.